You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we are going to wrap up the first voyage of British explorer James Cook. Just want to remind you to check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see a map of Cook's voyage, as well as links to related resources. Last time we left Cook and the Endeavour as they worked slowly through the Great Barrier Reef near the northern tip of Australia's eastern coast. On this voyage, Cook and his men had been to Tahiti, some other Polynesian islands, searched unsuccessfully for Terra Australis, circumnavigated New Zealand, and then gone up the eastern coast of Australia. This had been an incredible bit of exploration on Cook's part, as he opened up all sorts of territory that had been unknown to most of the rest of the world. Cook's ship, Endeavour, had almost met a watery grave after striking a coral reef, while trying to find a route through the Great Barrier Reef. Innovative thinking and cool heads kept Endeavour afloat, and she had managed to make her way to the Australian coast, where she was hauled up onto the beach and repaired. Cook had then weaved his way through a labyrinth of reefs and islands and reached the open sea in mid-August of 1770. Cook's plan was to pass through the Torres Strait, which divides Australia and New Guinea, and then head to the Dutch colony of Batavia, which is modern-day Jakarta in Indonesia. From there, the men could recuperate and the endeavor could be refitted and reprovisioned. Next, it would be a long trek across the Indian Ocean, around the southern tip of Africa, and then north to England. A few important points. First, Endeavour had been repaired by her crew, but she was not in good shape. She leaked constantly, and the pumps were always in operation. Plus, her sails badly needed to be repaired or replaced. Some questioned if the ship would even make it to Batavia, much less back to England. Second, as noted, Cook's plan was to take him through the Torres Strait. The problem with this was that in Cook's time, there were no concrete records proving the strait actually existed. Many people thought that New Guinea and Australia were connected. The reason for this is because the physical nature of the strait. It is only 151 kilometers, or 94 miles, wide at the narrowest point, and the waters of the Torres Strait are very tricky and very dangerous to navigate. And that is because they are very shallow, the depth ranging from only 7 to 15 meters, or 23 to 49 feet. This means that there are a lot of underwater obstacles, including nearly 600 coral reefs and 274 islands. The strait is also notorious for its strong currents and bad weather. Ships entering the strait were doing so at their own risk. The channel is so dangerous that even today, there are only two routes used by commercial shipping through the strait. Dutch explorer Abel Tasman had failed to find a route through the Torres Strait and had come away convinced that New Guinea and Australia were connected. However, there were many who, by studying a variety of different records, 
believe the strait did exist, and if the strait did exist, it would save Cook and Endeavour a lot of time going through it, as opposed to heading north and sailing around New Guinea. On August 22nd, the Endeavour reached the northernmost tip of Australia. If you look at a map of Australia, there's a finger-like protrusion in the northeast, and that's where Cook had reached. Today we call that finger Cape York Peninsula. It was here that Cook decided to land on an island and make his way to the top of a high vantage in hope of seeing a water passage to the west. He would not be disappointed. He was now convinced he could sail through the strait. Cook then planted a flag and claimed the entire eastern shoreline of Australia for Great Britain. He would write, quote, I may land no more upon the eastern coast of New Holland, and on the western side I can make no new discoveries, the honor of which belongs to the Dutch navigators. But the eastern coast from the latitude of 38 degrees south to this place, I am confident, was never seen or visited by any European before us. End quote. Cook would, appropriately, name this place Possession Island, and he understood that he was doing something historic. He was laying claim to over 2,000 miles of coastline, which could, and would, expand Great Britain's empire in ways no one imagined. Anyhow, Cook and Endeavour moved west, carefully weaving through the Torres Strait. The ship went slow as no one was anxious to make a mistake and strike another reef. Much to the chagrin of Banks and the other botanists, Cook mostly avoided stopping and landing, and he didn't need to map these coasts or islands, as much of it was already done by Dutch navigators. Instead, Cook focused on getting his men and ship to safety as quickly as possible. He knew his crew were homesick and tired, and eager to reach a port, which would provide them some semblance of home. Moving through the Torres Strait, Cook seemed a little timid and hesitant at this point of his journey. Like a man so close to a prize, he becomes gripped with uncertainty. But it's hard to blame Cook for such feelings. His ship was in terrible condition, and he had survived so much. He was fearful of things coming to an end right at the doorsteps of success. But Cook need not have worried. Endeavour made her way through the Torres Straits and pressed westward. On September 15th, near Timor, the Endeavour would come upon an island not on any maps. This was Savu. On the island, the men could see houses, grazing livestock, and even men on horseback. They also saw the Dutch flag being flown. Cook would send Lieutenant John Gore to investigate and find these natives were under the rule of the local Raja, who worked for the Dutch East India Company. The island was not on any map because the Dutch didn't want it to be. We have seen this in the past, in particular with the Portuguese. These places were part of their commercial trade network. They had no desire to share such locations with the rest of the world. Thus, many got left off public maps during this time period. Anyhow, the British would, after some negotiations, trade for rice, pork, fruit, and livestock. Cook had to give up hard cash, along with other valuables such as muskets, to facilitate the trades. Joseph Banks would even sacrifice one of his prized greyhounds to help out. From Savu, Cook continued onward, past the islands of Sumbawa and Bali, and then to Java, where Batavia was located on the northern tip of the island. The crew were in good spirits. They had quality food and plenty of it, and they knew they were close to what they would call civilization. They had been gone for nearly two years, and they were anxious to hear word of the outside world. Also, Batavia promised to be full of taverns and brothels. Cook would sail into the harbor at Batavia on October 7, 1770. He would later apologize to Dutch officials for not offering a formal greeting, as was custom, but he didn't have enough cannon to perform the salute properly. Some notes about Batavia. The port was the capital of the Dutch East India Company and the trading hub of the Far East. It had a 1,200-man garrison and had been built like a European city with canals and high walls. The city had excellent shipbuilding facilities. Now, before Cook went ashore, he would gather all of the journals from the men on the ship and lock them away. 
Remember, this was a Dutch colony, and while the English had every right to come to Batavia, that might not stop the Dutch from being suspicious about what Cook was up to in the area. He didn't want all of his charts and logs confiscated. Just in case this happened, Cook made a copy of his materials and gave them to a convoy of friendly ships heading to England. This included his journal and charts, plus some letters to the Admiralty and the Royal Society. In his letter, Cook praised his men and said he had lost no one to scurvy or sickness, although he seems to have forgotten about the guy who had died of tuberculosis in Australia. No matter, he was proud of how things had gone. And so, while Cook and his men were hoping to be able to celebrate and relax in Batavia, they were instead going to sail into a nightmare. And that is because sickness was running rampant in the city. Even before landing, Cook had been warned about this, but he had no clue just how devastating it was. The problem was that Batavia had been constructed on a low-lying swamp, and the canals didn't drain well. Combine this with a humid climate, and you have a breeding ground for diseases. Now, despite the dangerous conditions in Batavia, Cook had no choice but to dry dock Endeavour and have repairs done by the local shipwrights. Worms had eaten away at much of the ship, and in addition to all the holes that had been patched up, the main keel was badly damaged. The ship had a long refit ahead of her. And with the crew ashore, it wouldn't take long for malaria and dysentery to start running through the men. Joseph Banks and his fellow botanist, Daniel Solander, were amongst the first to be felled. Banks would rent a house in the city where he was able to recuperate from his illness and comfort. But the rest of the crew weren't as fortunate as Banks. When they got sick, they were confined to tents on an island in the harbor. Cook became sick as well, but he would stay in a hotel close to Endeavor to supervise the refit. Over the next weeks, virtually everyone from Endeavor was hit by dysentery, malaria, or some other illness. Some of the men would die in Batavia, but many more would linger on and pass away on the long voyage home to England. Among the dead would be Tapaya, the priest who had come on board in Tahiti as a translator, as well as his servant boy, Tiada. Banks' secretary and fellow scientist Herman Spurring, astronomer Charles Green, surgeon Bill Monkhouse, and illustrator Sidney Parkinson all eventually succumbed to their illnesses. These were men who had been critical to the success of the expedition, and in the case of Parkinson, provided some of the most iconic memories of the voyage through his drawings and sketches. Lieutenant Zachary Hicks survived both dysentery and malaria, but then contracted tuberculosis. He would not make it home to England. One note I want to make regarding Hicks. At the start of the expedition, I had inadvertently identified Lieutenant John Gore as the second-in-command of the Endeavour, and Hicks the third-in-command. That, however, is wrong. It was the other way around. My apologies for the mistake. Endeavour would spend two and a half months in Batavia being refitted and then stocked with fresh provisions. She would not depart until December 26, 1770. It would have been a miserable Christmas for Cook and the crew, with so many of the men sick, dead, and dying. When Endeavour sailed out of the harbour at Batavia, only 19 of the crew were healthy enough to man their stations. The Dutch actually congratulated Cook on the low death rate of his crew, saying it wasn't uncommon for half the men to succumb to the deadly diseases of the city. No matter Endeavour, which Cook called my hospital ship, would sail west across the Indian Ocean to Africa, a voyage of more than 5,000 miles or 8,000 kilometers. On the crossing, deaths continued into February. Finally, when March came around, the dysentery that had plagued the crew faded. Thanks to some favorable winds, Endeavour reached Africa on March 4th and then the Dutch port of Cape Town 10 days later. Despite some fierce storms, Endeavour made it around Africa's southern tip in good shape. Cape Town was an active, vibrant port, with Cook counting 16 ships from the Netherlands, Denmark, France, and Great Britain. Upon landing, the first thing that Cook did was get his sick to the local doctors. Despite this, five more men would die while in port. 
I read different death tolls related to the illnesses contracted in Batavia, but the number generally ranges from 30 to 40. That's at least a third of the crew. One death that was not attributed to illness was that of the ship's master, Robert Molyneux. Molyneux died as a result of too much alcohol. Endeavour remained in Cape Town for a month, the ship getting overhauled and painted, and her sails repaired. The men would, finally, get a chance to recuperate from the miserable conditions at Batavia. However, even with proper rest and medical attention, 11 of the ship's crew were unable to report to work when Endeavour left port. While in Cape Town, reports arrived saying that England and Spain were on the brink of war. And when Endeavour sailed on April 16th, the first thing Cook did was prepare the men for combat. But make no mistake, Cook desperately wanted to avoid any sort of naval engagement. Endeavour was not a warship. She only had a few cannons remaining, and the ship was slow and frail. And so, ahead of Cook and his crew was a long journey to England, which stretched over 7,000 miles, or 11,000 kilometers. Endeavour would make for St. Helena Island in the South Atlantic. The isolated and desolate island is probably most famous as the last home of Napoleon Bonaparte. Anyhow, due to favorable winds, Endeavour would make great time across the ocean, 440 miles, or 700 kilometers, in just three days. She would reach St. Helena on May 1st. There, Cook would discover a dozen British East India Company ships being escorted to Europe under the protection of the HMS Portland, a 50-gun warship. Cook would thus join up with the convoy when they departed. By the way, one thing I'll mention is that even now, on St. Helena, Joseph Banks was still searching for plants and animal specimens. He spent an entire day collecting stuff, even hiking to the top of the island's highest peak. Banks doesn't always come across the best when you read stories about him, but you have to admire his passion for the natural sciences. Anyhow, Endeavour would sail with a convoy of ships, but the stumpy bark was not built for speed, and she soon fell behind. But before losing contact with the HMS Portland, Cook gave her captain a copy of his journals and charts, plus a letter, to be delivered to the Admiralty, just in case Endeavour couldn't finish the journey. And so up the African, and then European, coast went Endeavour. By the way, the war with Spain had been averted, so the threat of a hostile encounter with an enemy ship never materialized. Lieutenant Zachary Hicks would die at the end of May, making John Gore the expedition's second-in-command. Cook promoted Charles Clerk to acting lieutenant. Clerk will be important on both of Cook's next two voyages. And one final death to report occurred just a week before Endeavour reached the coast of England, and that was Lady, the last of Joseph Banks' beloved greyhounds. At noon on July 11, 1771, England was sighted. Endeavour sailed along the southern coast for two days, then anchored off of Deal, just north of Dover on the English Channel, on the afternoon of July 13th. Here, a pilot would come on board to guide Endeavour up the Thames River. Cook, Joseph Banks, and Daniel Solander would depart and head overland to London. Once there, the three men would depart on good terms, Cook heading directly to the Admiralty. His time there would be short, and by the late afternoon of July 14th, he arrived at his home for the first time in nearly three years. And so, James Cook had done it. The Endeavour was back in England, completing one of the great voyages of discovery in naval history. But it would not be long before the machinations of powerful men would put into motion another expedition, one that would equal, if not surpass, that of Endeavour. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. 
brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When James Cook returned to England in the summer of 1771, the world was very different from what he had left three years earlier. On the painful side, Cook found his family smaller than he had imagined. The baby his wife had delivered shortly after Cook had departed had died in less than three weeks, and his other daughter, Elizabeth, had recently passed away at the age of four. Cook's two sons, James and Nathaniel, were seven and eight years of age. It would have been quite the shock to suddenly have their father home, who they barely knew. The first thing Cook did, after having a reunion with his wife and children, was the unpleasant business of notifying the families of those who had lost a loved one on the recent voyage. It pained Cook to do this, as he had been so fastidious about maintaining the health of his crew. He would then begin going over the logs and journals of the expedition before officially submitting them to the Admiralty. Now, regarding Cook's expedition, news of its return quickly spread throughout England. Many people had assumed that Endeavour had gone down somewhere on the other side of the world. However, the person that people were talking about was not Cook, but Joseph Banks. Within a day of returning to his home in London, Banks was already working the press and using his connections to trumpet the expedition and his oversized role in it. Banks and Cook had mostly enjoyed a good relationship. However, in the middle of nowhere, it was Cook who had held sway as the most important person. But now that they were back in London, Banks quickly reestablished his preeminent position over Cook, who was a simple commoner. Banks was rich, charismatic, and as noble as a noble could get. The guy knew how to market himself, and he had the means and connections to do so. It would not take long for the world to laud Banks for his expedition, with Cook getting a few nice sentences here and there. Banks would receive an honorary doctorate from Oxford, and soon there was talk of a follow-up expedition to the South Seas, with Banks as the leader. Now, despite all of the press, there were some who weren't buying the idea of Banks as the greatest thing since sliced bread. Within the Admiralty, those in the know understood it was Cook, not Banks, who had made the recent expedition a success. No one doubted that Banks and the other civilians had done a great job, but the real story was about Cook. They understood what he had been through, and just importantly, what he had accomplished. Cook's voyage had not just rearranged the chess pieces of the world, it had introduced some new ones to the board. The scientific stuff was great, but to the Admiralty, it was about the explorations and discoveries. And so, while Banks got the public accolades, it was Cook who got the appreciative handshakes from those within the government. This included John Montague, a.k.a. the Earl of Sandwich and the First Lord of the Admiralty, as well as Hugh Palisar, Cook's old boss and friend, who was now the Comptroller for the Royal Navy. Cook also got to meet King George, who personally gave him a promotion, this to Commander. And so, less than a month after Cook had returned from his three-year journey, he was told that a follow-up mission was in the works. But before we go there, I want to put one thing to rest, and that is the ship that had carried Cook and us around the world, the Endeavour. 
Cook's beloved Whitby cat had plotted its way around the globe, enduring countless storms and dangers, but it was in terrible condition. The Navy ordered Endeavour refitted and would use her to carry provisions and supplies for a few years. She would then be sold to private interests in 1775 for 634 pounds. She was renamed the Lord Sandwich II, as there was already a ship called the Lord Sandwich, and worked as a naval transport and commercial hauler. She ended up in America, serving as a prison ship for a time, before being scuttled off Newport, Rhode Island on August 4, 1778, to help block the bay from the French fleet that had recently arrived in North America. The exact location of Endeavour has been disputed, as there are many other wrecks in the same area. Recently, archaeologists have claimed to have found the exact location of the famed ship, but others dispute these findings. If Endeavour truly has been found, there is not much left of her, as archaeologists say only about 15% of the ship is still intact, shipworms in the elements destroying the rest. Now, there is one thing that has survived from the Endeavour, and that is her cannons. Remember when the ship was stuck on a reef off Australia and the men threw overboard six of her cannons to lighten the ship's load? Well, those cannons were located in 1969. The cannons were restored, and three of them are now on display in various museums in Australia, as well as one in Philadelphia, one in London, and another in New Zealand. Also, there are several replicas of Endeavour, one of which circled the world twice. It is now a museum ship in Sydney. And finally, while the ship Endeavour is gone, its name has endured. Apollo 15's command module was named Endeavour, as was one of the space shuttles. So that is the story of the HMS Endeavour. Let's get back to Cook and Joseph Banks and the new expedition that was in the works. The purpose of the new voyage was to determine, once and for all, the existence or not of Terra Australis. Many people still believed it existed. One thing that critics took aim at about Cook was that he had cut off his search for the continent at 40 degrees south. Men such as Scottish explorer Alexander Dalrymple, who was still honked off at not leading the last expedition, said Cook had chickened out in the face of a little cold and wind. If he'd only been bolder and had had a stiffer backbone, Terra Australis would have been found. Of course, Cook was only following orders, but who lets facts get in the way of things? After circling New Zealand, Joseph Banks had stated that Terra Australis likely didn't exist. But now that he was back in England, he took up the cause of Terra Australis, who was saying it was critical for Great Britain to find and claim the continent before others did. And so Banks proposed to lead another expedition back to the region to settle the matter. This would be a bigger and better affair. More men, more scientists, more ships. And Banks had a critical supporter in this process, Lord Sandwich, the head guy at the Admiralty. The two were close friends and peers. Banks wanted Cook to be the captain of the flagship of this upcoming expedition, and Cook was happy to play along with such an idea. The reason for this was that Cook's life as a Navy officer was an uncertain lot. He was at the whim of the Admiralty. His first post-endeavor assignment was to lead a survey of the coast of England. That wasn't the most sexy gig. And so Cook was happy to be attached to Banks' expedition. The two had a pretty good relationship, and more importantly, Cook knew that once the expedition got into the wild, any idea that Banks was the leader would quickly be put to rest, and he, Cook, would assert control. And thus, in November of 1771, Cook was offered the job to lead the next expedition. He would accept and be transferred from the upcoming job of surveying the English coast. And so, preparations for Cook's second voyage began. But before we go there, I want to talk a bit about Cook's life at this time. First, as 1772 rolled around, Cook's wife, Elizabeth, found herself pregnant. And second, I think we start to see some changes in Cook's personality. These are subtle, but important. The 43-year-old Cook had spent the last 15 years in the Royal Navy, the last three being absolute ruler over his ship and crew. His word had been law. 
Even the people of Tahiti had treated him with respect and awe. This sort of thing can alter a man's personality, even if just a bit. It was said that Cook became a bit more stern, even arrogant. He had already been an intense and moody man, but those things only had grown over the last few years, as command can isolate a ship's captain from those around him. In some ways, Cook was subsumed by the Royal Navy. The Navy was his life, now more than ever. It's what he was good at, what made him feel important, what brought him praise. Some people suggested that Cook, having experienced running his little fiefdom for the past three years, missed that sort of life. He had come home to England and was forced to deal with clueless nobles, rambunctious children, and conniving politicians. And another thing, Cook's success had allowed him to rise above his station in life. He wasn't just the son of a farmer and a simple warrant officer. He was recognized in the streets and in the halls of power. And while he wasn't a high-profile figure, he subtly played the games that went on within the Admiralty and the government. And Cook enjoyed the privileges and influence he now had. An example of this was when a noted physician, Dr. Charles Burney, came to Cook and asked him to take his 21-year-old son, James, an officer in the Navy, on his next voyage. Cook agreed. Thus, it was people of importance coming to Cook for favors, not the other way around. And Cook, no doubt, appreciated having people indebted to him, not to Joseph Banks or someone in the government. All of this shows that James Cook was a different man than the one who had left England three years earlier. He was more confident and assured, but he was also a bit harder and impatient. By all counts, Cook loved his wife and family very much, yet it would be the Navy and his voyages that would consume so much of his life. And so preparations for a second expedition were soon underway, Cook in the thick of things, just like with his first voyage. He would take his wife back to where he had grown up to see family and friends, including Cook's father and siblings. Also, there were the walkers who had given Cook his first job as a sailor. In Whitby, Cook would seek out Thomas Fishburne, the designer and builder of Endeavour, and congratulate him on the sturdy construction of the ship that had gotten him around the world. At the same time, Cook would select two vessels from Fishburne's shipyard to be part of his upcoming expedition. The ships were the 462-ton Marcus of Granby and the 340-ton Marcus of Rockingham. The Marcus of Granby was originally slated to be renamed the HMS Drake, but the Admiralty didn't want to offend the Spanish. Thus, the ship would be called the Resolution. The other ship, the Marcus of Rockingham, would be called Adventure. Resolution would be Cook's flagship and the vessel he commanded on the upcoming expedition. The Admiralty bought her for £4,150 and spent another 6500 on the refit. She was 111 feet long and 35 feet wide, or 34 by 11 meters, making her a little bigger than Endeavour. Resolution would have a dozen six-pound cannons, plus another dozen swivel guns. The Resolution was sent to Deptford for refitting under Cook's watchful eyes. We will save most of those details about the expedition's crews and so forth for next time. Now I want to detail the drama leading up to the expedition's departure. A reminder, the year was 1772. Great Britain had vast imperial ambitions at this time, and the government was keen to follow up on Cook's first voyage. Other nations were exploring the South Seas and searching for Terra Australis. Thus, the quicker an expedition could depart, the better. To conduct a search for Terra Australis, Cook proposed operating out of two fixed reliable bases in the South Seas. This included Matavai Bay in Tahiti and Queen Charlotte Sound in New Zealand. Also, Cook decided to sail in the opposite direction from his last voyage and would go east instead of west. That meant heading south, going around Africa, and then sailing south of New Holland, a.k.a. Australia, and then on to New Zealand and Tahiti and the surrounding waters. The ships would return by going around Cape Horn in South America. This route would allow Cook to follow up on a report by French explorer Jean-Baptiste Charles Beauvais, 
who in 1739 had discovered an island 1,500 miles, or 2,400 kilometers, south of Africa at 54 degrees south. As a reminder, the higher the degree, the closer one gets to the pole. So 54 degrees south is quite a bit further south than Cook had traveled on his search for Terra Australis on his previous journey. Anyhow, Beauvais had not mapped his discovery's location properly, and thus no one could find his island. But if it did exist, it could be a hint of something bigger, and thus Cook could investigate. The plan was to depart in March of 1772, less than a year after Cook had returned from his first voyage. It was an aggressive timeline, but Cook was game and worked feverishly to meet the deadline. However, while Cook was up to the task, the Admiralty had not counted on Joseph Banks. Remember, Banks was the celebrity leader of the new expedition. He was in tight with the Royal Society, and more importantly, Lord Sandwich, the head of the Admiralty. Anyhow, Banks slowly went about putting together a scientific team. There were 15 of them, some of the finest scientists in Europe. And that did not count servants. Banks was even bringing along two musicians to entertain the gentlemen on the long expedition. But then Banks got a look at Resolution and rebelled. The ship was far too small to accommodate his team. He had endured cramped quarters on the previous expedition, but not again. Hugh Palisar, the Navy's comptroller, refused to change anything, and so Banks went to his friend and peer, Lord Sandwich. The result? Cook had new orders. He was to enlarge Resolution by adding a new deck. Cook agreed to these changes, although he feared the vessel would be top-heavy. Because of this major change, the expedition would miss the March 1772 departure date. In May, the updated Resolution was sailed down the Thames to be tested in open waters. The result was a disaster. Charles Clerk, who was to be an officer on the upcoming expedition, would say of the newly redesigned resolution, quote, I think her by far the most unsafe ship I have ever saw or heard of, end quote. And the Royal Navy agreed. As a result, the new deck was ordered demolished. Soon, more than 200 carpenters and shipwrights were working to return resolution to her original design. Banks, as you can imagine, was furious when he saw the changes. It was said that he, quote, swore and stamped like a madman, end quote. But Banks wasn't giving up. He turned to his friend, Lord Sandwich, and demanded that the Navy give him the HMS Lawston, a 44-gun warship, for the upcoming expedition. And with that, Joseph Banks had gone too far. Lord Sandwich had done a lot for his friend, but this was too much. Sandwich told Banks that he and his team could go on resolution, as is, or not at all. Banks would elect for the latter. The truth is that men like Sandwich and Palisar had little desire to deal with the likes of Banks, They would do so as long as it worked within the confines of the naval world, but beyond that, no. And to be honest, Cook was a well-respected and well-liked officer who interacted regularly with Sandwich and Palisar. They wanted to do right by Cook and were probably all too happy to let Banks walk away from the Enterprise. Banks, by the way, would still put together an expedition, but on a much smaller scale. He would charter a ship and head to Iceland with his superstar team of scientists to do studies and research. Banks would take with him Lieutenant John Gore, who Cook had found so valuable on his previous mission. Gore had already circumnavigated the world three times, and he was not interested in another such mission, at least not at this time. Cook was disappointed at losing Gore, who he wanted to command adventure. Instead, Cook would give the job to Tobias Furneaux, a 36-year-old Royal Navy veteran. Furneaux had sailed with Samuel Wallace on his circumnavigation of the world several years earlier, and was the first European to set foot in Tahiti. Adventure, by the way, would have a crew of 81. Cook's ship, Resolution, would have 112 men, including 90 seamen, 18 marines, and a few civilians. We will detail more about the crew next time. Otherwise, things were coming together, although later than anticipated. Cook had hoped to depart in March of 1772, but would not leave until July. 
Now, I want to note that without Banks and the civilians, Cook's upcoming expedition was strictly military in nature. It would be about discovery and surveying. Cook's first voyage was mostly military, but it had been cloaked in a veneer of science. But not this time. Cook would be setting off to the other side of the world to explore. And so that's it for Cook in this episode. Next time, we will dive into the start of his second expedition. In the meantime, I do want to do a little housekeeping regarding a few of the people from Cook's first expedition. These are the individuals whose time with us is complete. And I'll be honest, there's not a lot of names on the list. And that's because most of the important people will either be going on more journeys with Cook or died on the previous one. The first person I'll mention is not a person, but the famed traveled goat. The traveled goat had circumnavigated the world with Cook, the second time the nanny goat had done such a thing and she had never failed to give the officers and gentlemen of Endeavor some milk. Everyone cherished the goat. Joseph Banks even had a silver collar made for the animal. On a return to England, the goat would be retired, taking up residence in Cook's Yard outside of London, where she became a bit of a celebrity. Sadly, the traveled goat would die within a year or so of returning to England. The first human being that I'll mention is Daniel Solander, Banks' friend and fellow botanist. By completing the Endeavour expedition, he had become the first Swede to circumnavigate the world. Salander was an outstanding scientist, but in many ways, he was always overshadowed by Banks. After Endeavour, he would go with Banks to Iceland and then serve in the Natural History Department at the British Museum. He died in 1781 at the age of 49 due to a stroke. His premature death and a lack of published materials allowed him to be forgotten by many, but his contributions to the world of botany should not be understated. Today, we acknowledge and remember Solander for the extensive and outstanding work he did on the Endeavour expedition. And the final person I'll mention is Joseph Banks. The man will not be part of any other voyages with Cook, but he does loom over his world to some extent. Banks was upset about the turn of events surrounding Cook's second voyage, but he seems to have focused his anger at Lord Sandwich and Hugh Palisar rather than Cook. Banks would never stop crowing about his contributions to Endeavour's voyage. Cook seems to have taken the downplaying of his role with Grace, and the two men went on to have a decent relationship for the rest of their lives. As for Banks, he would go on to have a long and distinguished career in the natural sciences. He is credited with bringing 30,000 plant specimens home with him, including 1,400 that had never been documented by a European. He would go on to serve as the head of the Royal Society for an amazing 41 years and was an advocate and champion of sending people all over the world to collect specimens, explore, and fill in the blank spots on the map. Some of those he supported included Alexander von Humboldt and Mungo Park. Banks would also champion the idea of a British settlement in New South Wales and the colonization of Australia. Joseph Banks was a very rich man, with vast holdings throughout England. When seen through the lens of his relationship with James Cook, we often see him as this womanizing, carousing diva. But I never want anyone to walk away not respecting the man's passion regarding his scientific work. He really was one of the giants of the era with regards to the studying of the natural sciences. Banks is remembered in many ways, with towns, islands, schools, parks, and gardens all over the world named after him. And there are no less than 80 species of plants that bear his name. He died in 1820 at the age of 77. And so, I want to finish today with a few words about the first expedition of James Cook. It really was an epic voyage of exploration and discovery, as well as science. The work done by Banks and the rest of the scientists was groundbreaking, and the amount of new land that Cook surveyed was astounding. This included almost the entire coastline of New Zealand and the entire eastern coast of Australia. The detail and precision of Cook's work was truly outstanding. 
Another thing we can't forget about is that Cook proved that there was a passage between Australia and New Guinea, something that had been debated for almost 200 years. And this first voyage really sets the stage for European expansion into Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific. Yet another thing about Cook and his crew that I admire is his reaction to adversity. The crew was a reflection of Cook, and when things went badly, such as when they hit the reef off of Australia, they worked as a team and did what was necessary to live another day. They did this for three years through some very trying situations. There's a lot to admire in that. Now, not all the stuff about Cook's first voyage was great, or even good. Cook is often lauded for his relatively humane treatment of the native people of Tahiti. He saw a potential partnership with these people and tried to treat them fairly in order to facilitate further interactions, and this helped Cook accomplish the goals that had been assigned to him. But we should be very clear. Cook, like most Europeans, never looked at the native peoples and saw them as equal partners. As long as they were compliant, he was happy to work with them. When things went bad, he was quick to use force to get his way. We see this in starker terms when dealing with the Maori in New Zealand. These encounters are filled with violence, and we see Cook and his crew get more and more frustrated by the local people as time passes. Another issue we should mention is the transit of Venus. The public reason Endeavour was sent to Tahiti. Well, due to circumstances beyond the control of Cook and the expedition scientist, the measuring of the transit was not perfect. There was turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere, and it caused Venus to blur, thus trying to record the exact moments that Venus entered and exited its passages across the Sun was difficult, if not impossible. The Royal Society would blame Charles Green for what they saw as a failure, but again, there was nothing anyone could have done about the situation. Green, who was dead, was a nice fall guy for the mixed data. And since I mentioned Charles Green, I also want to do a nod to all the other men of Endeavour who did not survive, especially artist Sidney Parkinson. I love it when I get sketches and drawings of a place or of the people on these expeditions, but Parkinson's work is really special. There are thousands of drawings of the native people, plants, animals, and landscapes that bring the voyage to life. It really is amazing. Anyhow, that is it for today. If Cook had done just this single voyage, we would praise him as one of history's great explorers. But the man has more adventure ahead of him, much more. In this second voyage, Cook will equal and maybe surpass the feats of endeavor. That's an extraordinary thing to say. And so there you go. That's a wrap on the first voyage of James Cook. I hope you've enjoyed this part of our series on the man. Join us next time when voyage number two gets underway. Thank you for listening. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other super cool podcasts, including the Projection Booth and the Pirate History Podcast. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.